The system contains adult content and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. I'll be the first to admit that this case can be confusing. There's so many players here. So I want to remind you what we've heard so far. In the months leading up to the Bucyrus Estates murders, there was a pharmacy burglary ring operating in Ohio. Pharmacies were being broken into and the stolen drugs were being sold. Members of the ring included Rodney Melton, Bruce Melton, and Demetrius Reeves, the father of Juanita and Quentin. This ring is well-documented in the official reports by the State Board of Pharmacy. Demetrius Reeves was an accomplice of Rodney and Bruce Melton. He was also supposedly a friend of Kevin Keith. January 21st, 1994. Kevin and several of his family members were arrested during a drug raid. By the time the murders occurred, Kevin was out on bail awaiting pending drug charges. Though this is documented in the pharmacy burglary report, no one involved in the raid in Crestline was part of the pharmacy ring. The Board of Pharmacy and the Galleon Police Station were still monitoring the burglary ring when the Bucyrus Estates murders occurred. The Galleon police officers leading this charge were Lieutenants Jerry Hickman and David Dane. Rudell Chapman was one of their confidential informants during this time. The other was named Lynn McKee. It's believed that Rudell was the intended target of the shootings on February 13th at the Bucyrus Estates complex due to his ratting to the police. January 31st, 1994. Jerry Hickman reported to the Board of Pharmacy that an informant heard that Rodney Melton was paid $15,000 to cripple the man that was responsible for the drug raids the week before. The officers in charge of the pharmacy burglary ring investigation were aware of this reported threat, and it's documented in the report, though it's unclear who would be paying Rodney Melton the $15,000. Why wasn't the person who made these reported threats treated as a main suspect? And why didn't the police do more to protect Rudell and his family? Maybe they didn't take it seriously, but that threat was reported two weeks before the murders. February 13th, 1994. The murders at the Bucyrus Estates complex take place. That night at the crime scene, Lieutenant Dane and Hickman said they heard Kevin's name mentioned in connection with the crime while they were at the hospital with the victim's families. According to them, Rudell Chapman said Rodney was at the hospital that night, accusing him of being the reason why all of this happened. Rodney Melton showed up to the crime scene later as well, mentioning his card broken down and asking about the kind of bullets used. February 15th, 1994. Two days after the murders, Bill Clinton gave his anti-crime speech in London, Ohio. That same day, Kevin Keith was arrested. Kevin Keith was arrested at his home in Crestline, halfway between Bucyrus and Mansfield. He is charged with three counts. February 18th, three days after Kevin's arrest, Juanita was interviewed by police at the hospital. She was shown Kevin's photo in a lineup and said it was not him. This is also when she mentioned the name Bruce. Though the pharmacy burglary investigation was happening in tandem with the Bucyrus Estates murders investigation, none of this information was presented in court during Kevin's trial. 
Despite the connections between the cases, it was never brought up at all. This case is messy, and the more you dig, the more complicated it gets, but also the more instances of negligence and possible corruption you find. If not all of this information was available in court, can you trust the results of the Bucyrus Estates murder trial? Remember, it's the state's burden to pursue all possible suspects to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Kevin committed this crime. Did the state meet this requirement? I'm Kim Kardashian, and this is The System. A lot of things don't add up super clearly in this case, but the more you talk to people, the more they do start to align. It's kind of like that classic idea of putting together a puzzle. My name is Eric Sandy, and I'm a Northeast Ohio-based journalist and editor, and I've been covering the courts and criminal justice-related stories for the past 12 years. I wrote this feature on uh, the Kevin Keith case in 2017, and that was for Cleveland Scene magazine. The official story is uh, about as open and shut as possible, according to the theory that the state put forth back in 1994. What I came to find out was that it's a much more complicated story that involves the interplay between local police, judges and courts officials, um, and, and prosecuting attorneys, as well as a completely separate criminal case involving pharmacy burglaries that were taking place across the state of Ohio about a year before the murder. And thus, the, the puzzle grew more complicated and, and more interesting because I started to see that there was a lot going on around Kevin Keith. When those puzzle pieces started interlocking, it started casting the murder in a completely different light. And once you threw all those puzzle pieces under the table, Kevin Keith as an individual didn't fit into that story so much as everybody else. Kevin Keith is kind of on the periphery of that in this community in, in Crestline, Ohio. You know, a, a murder case where someone's very quickly convicted and goes to jail is uh, a tragedy, first of all, but it's not explicitly a story. It doesn't tell us too much about what's happening in a community at a given time in the state of Ohio. Everything else around Kevin Keith, including what I just said, including the police and, and the local courts officials, that does tell a story about something that happened in the state of Ohio at a certain time that has ramifications that continue to play out to this day. And it further rots away at the system itself. In 1993 into early 94, there were a string of pharmacy burglaries where essentially narcotics were being stolen, mostly in like liquid form and, and pill form, and then inevitably sold on the streets in, in central Ohio. The State Board of Pharmacy was investigating this and had enlisted essentially a task force that included a few police officers from Galleon, Ohio. And that's very close to Bucyrus and Crestline. 
Those police officers were Jerry Hickman and David Dane. They were brought on to essentially investigate these pharmacy burglaries. In fact, Hickman and Dane had been tailing this ring for six months prior to the Board of Pharmacy getting involved. And one of the crucial documents that, that had been uncovered before I came around by the attorneys in this case was a State Board of Pharmacy investigative narrative that broke down day by day what this task force was doing, what they were finding, and who they were interacting with. That included informants, that included the actual pharmacies themselves. The reason that that's very interesting in this case is that the day-by-day -day narrative eventually catches up to February 1994, which is when the murders in Bucyrus take place. Captain Keith, charged with murdering a Bucyrus family on February the 13th. The overlap between this investigation into the pharmacy burglaries and the investigation into the Bucyrus murders is uh, a pretty notable Venn diagram. Uh, the two criminal cases involve a lot of the same people, a very similar time frame. It's difficult to not notice that. Jerry Hickman is visible on, on both these cases. In the police reports from the Bucyrus Police Department, not only does Rodney Melton show up on the scene, but Jerry Hickman does as well, who, again, is not a Bucyrus police officer and, and was not at the time, but rather a Galleon police officer. A lot of a lot of departments and you know first responder agencies will certainly cooperate with one another across city lines. You see this a lot with fires or medical emergencies. There's certainly reason to suspect that a police officer who is investigating pharmacy break-ins would be at the scene of a murder that has explicit connections to the informant in that case who he'd been working with and potentially the suspects in those pharmacy breaking cases. Because again, the people who are murdered at the apartment that night were not the intended target. They were not informing on any pharmacy break-in suspects, but they were the family of that person. So there are explicit connections between the work that Jerry Hickman was doing investigating pharmacy break-ins and the people who were targets of a murder that had been set up that night in Bucyrus. Jerry Hickman was the lead on the pharmacy burglary ring case. Though he was based in Galleon, he shows up with Lieutenant Dane at the scene of the crime in Bucyrus. They provide the first mention of Kevin's name, which they supposedly heard at the hospital that same night. The pharmacy burglary ring seems to have nothing to do with Kevin Keith. He wasn't even one of the members of the ring, and yet his family's drug bust is documented in the pharmacy burglary ring reports, and the officers at the helm of the investigation named Kevin as a potential suspect at the scene of the crime. These are the same officers that were aware of the threats allegedly made by Rodney Melton in January. So if these officers were becoming involved in the Bucyrus murder case, why wasn't Rodney's reported threat ever brought up at trial? I kind of walked away from the initial reporting on this story feeling just far more disillusioned with low-level local police officers than I even had before. It becomes very clear how simple tasks that are being carried out by local police can very quickly spiral out into 
much broader implications, including other criminal cases, other communities entirely, other types of crimes, things like pharmacy break-ins and, and drug sales and murders. Again, not that the police officers are explicitly committing these crimes, but they're certainly, in this case and in many other cases, not preventing them and not discouraging these types of activities. And in fact, because they're often working very closely with confidential informants or the suspects in, in certain cases, they're very close to this kind of behavior. And by letting it go or by turning a blind eye, so to speak, and possibly even benefiting from the ramifications, these kinds of cases can very quickly get out of hand. My question is, what was in it for the police? What was in it for the police to just rush to close this case? Because to me, if we're uncovering these details years later, it seems this case was not handled properly and transparently in 1994. In cases like this, one of the questions that emerges, of course, is what's in it for the local officials? Because a lot of that is shrouded in darkness itself and is, is sort of contained within the individual police officer's own decision-making processes, my interpretation is short-term gains. You know, the freedom to operate on their own, away from the scrutiny of higher public offices or, or state-level offices, let's say, in this case. The ability to kind of be a big fish in a small pond, which is, I think, a, a metaphor that we've all run into in one way or another. You see this a lot in the corporate world, but you certainly see it in the policing world, too, where these little fiefdoms that exist all over the country, and certainly would include a place like Bucyrus or Galleon or Crestline, Ohio, police officers there, just as a general rule, have quite a lot of power. But I don't think it's too hard to imagine that some short-term gains related to power on a very small local level were enough to entice them to, to do what they felt they had to do. In any case that I've taken on so far, this is a common through line. Small town police rushing to solve something and sticking with their story no matter what, even when it seems like there's reasonable doubt. The thing is, the pharmacy burglary ring and the investigation around it was left out of Kevin's trial in 1994. As Eric Sandy said, this case is like a Venn diagram, and the burglary ring is one of those circles. But when Kevin went to trial, it's like that part of the story didn't even exist. I think Eric Sandy said it well. It can be hard to have faith in low-level police officers that are dealing with a case of this magnitude. There was pressure to solve this crime, especially after Clinton's anti-crime speech in Ohio. And it's believable to me that these officers doubled down on the version of the story that seemed good enough without having exhausted all options. To me, it seems, once they arrested Kevin only two days later, they did everything in their power to bolster that narrative rather than explore other loose ends and make sure that Kevin was guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt. The police and the state knew that another man was capable of committing this crime and never brought it to trial. That's exculpatory evidence and that's a Brady violation. A Brady violation is a very serious violation of due process. It's defined as the government's withholding of evidence that is material to the determination of guilt or punishment of a criminal defendant. This withholding of information violates the defendant's constitutional right to due process. 
and not all of the information surrounding Kevin's case was presented to the court and made available to legal counsel before trial. That's Brady. That's a Brady violation. That should, at that moment, give Kevin a new trial because it was never entered into court. Kevin went to death row. They could have killed him. This was a death penalty case. No one would research this case. No one would give a shit. What they didn't factor in was Charles Keith. Keith's brother Charles helped deliver 10,000 signatures to Governor Ted Strickland Tuesday, urging him to stop next month's planned execution. The information found in the pharmacy board reports about Rodney Melton being paid $15,000, that was a Brady violation, but it wasn't the only Brady violation. This was a Brady violation among several that we'd found. This is Rachel Troutman, Kevin's current attorney from the Ohio Public Defender's Office. The state has the burden of proof, and because they're supposed to seek justice, if they have anything in their possession that is exculpatory, that, that undermines the state's case and, and is helpful to the defendant, they're required by the Constitution to turn it over. Exculpatory evidence is evidence that helps the defendant and that undermines the state's case. It tends to disprove that the person committed the crime. For example, with Kevin's case, since they were alleging that Kevin is the person who shot six people, then the fact that there was evidence demonstrating that somebody else said they committed these crimes, that is exculpatory to Kevin. Brady violations are very serious prosecutorial misconduct. It goes to the core of the trial, and it goes to the job of the prosecutor. You know, we need to be able to trust that the people who are, are putting somebody on the stand and saying, you know, please convict this person, find beyond a reasonable doubt that they belong in prison or, or should be sentenced to death. You know, we need to trust that not only do they believe it, but that they are doing their job to the best of their ability and following all the constitutional obligations. When you find a Brady violation, especially one as significant as this, much less all of them together, it requires a new trial. In 2007, we filed our first motion for a new trial for Kevin, and we made the argument that the prosecutor had withheld from Kevin's defense the evidence that implicated Melton as the perpetrator. But the court said that Kevin had made this argument already, that Melton was the killer, and that the jury had rejected it, and that since much of this was already inferred at trial, it didn't matter enough to require a new trial. Kevin, we have requested a new trial on multiple different occasions for multiple different reasons, most of which being prosecutorial misconduct, and he has never been granted a new trial. He's never even been granted a hearing. Despite the fact that the pharmacy burglary investigation wasn't presented to the judge, the jury, or legal counsel during Kevin's trial, arrests had been made by law enforcement by May of 1994. They had uh, arrested Rodney. This is Charles, Kevin's older brother. He was arrested on the burglary, pharmacy burglary trial, so he was downstairs in the uh, Crawford County Jail, and they just brought him up and asked him a couple questions. And when that lawyer had 
Rodney on the stand, there was a zillion and one questions he could have asked him because I was thinking of those questions. They asked him if he did it. He says, no. He says, if you did it, would you tell us? He says, I'm sure I would. Before resting its case, the defense called Rodney Melton to the stand. You don't recall asking the sheriff about the casings and jackets that night? No, sir. And you didn't have anything to do with these killings on February the 13th, 1994? No, sir. You would tell us if you did, wouldn't you? I think I would. During the trial, the attorney asked Rodney Melton about when he brought up bullet casings to the sheriff at the scene of the murders. Rodney responded saying he didn't recall that. But we have the police report that states otherwise. Here's what it says. At 1200 hours, I spoke to Sheriff Schauber. He advised that the night of the shooting, he was at the scene and remained in his vehicle. He stated that Rodney Melton was also at the scene and came over to his car and spoke to him. We found it curious that Rodney made a point of telling them about how his car was broken down and he had to get a ride from Mansfield to come over when he heard about the shootings. Rodney also asked him if the bullets used were full jacketed nine millimeter, which they were. And if they were, the shooters were probably from Detroit as his son was killed in Detroit and that's what was used to kill him. Now, why he was at the scene of the crime, I don't understand, but he had told them that the bullets used were jacketed bullets. And he talked to Sheriff Schauber, and then when the ballistics came back, they were jacketed. Rodney's brother, Bruce, was called to the stand, too. The defense was trying to link Bruce Melton to the crime, but he denied any role in the shootings. Where were you the night of February 13, 1994? Columbus, Ohio. I have no further questions, thank you. Demetrius Rees was also getting ready to be a witness against Rodney in the pharmacy burglary. He was one of the, going to be the, one of the main witnesses. Well, you realize it was Demetrius Rees' kids who got shot. If Demetrius knew more than he let on, why wouldn't he have said so? Fear, and then you're looking at incriminating himself. Um, he knew that they were not going to arrest Rodney. So it would have been him and Rodney out there. And he just said, I, just, I don't know who did it. I just want whoever did it to be arrested. He spoke to me years later, but he was at that point, he was, especially talking to me, convinced that Kevin Keith was the guy who shot his children. Convinced. There may be more to the story when it comes to Demetrius being vague on the stand. Demetrius was facing his own criminal charges, along with Rodney and Bruce, due to the pharmacy burglary ring. And it turns out the charges were quite serious. They were facing RICO charges, which are given in connection with racketeering activity and organized crime. The pharmacy burglary ring falls under this, and there's reason to believe the ring was facing life in prison. By May of 1994, when Kevin's trial was taking place, Demetrius had also been called to testify against Rodney in the upcoming pharmacy burglary ring trial. So months after Kevin's arrest conviction, and he's now on death row, the pharmacy burglary ring case goes to court. This is a very big trial for the state board of pharmacy. It's, a, it's huge for the state of Ohio. It's huge for Crawford County. Now this is, imagine, this is a 99-count indictment against the pharmacy burglary ring, which includes Demetrius Reeves, Rodney Melton, Bruce Melton, 
They're all on trial with a RICO charge. Now, when you think about what these guys are facing, it really speaks to motive as to why someone would want to go after the CI. So a RICO charge, it was actually created back in the 70s, and it's the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. It was like the mafia. That's what it was created for. And the idea behind a RICO charge is that only charging for the underlying crimes, it would, it would be inadequate. You know, it doesn't truly reflect the crime that has happened. If they were just charged for burglary charges, it's not enough. The fact of the matter is, is that they were a ring, that they were a group. So because they were a group and they were organized to do these smaller burglaries, those smaller charges aren't enough. So the, so the RICO charge allows a more substantial sentencing. Definitely Rodney and Bruce were facing RICO charges because we have a subpoena in the file where Demetrius Reeves is subpoenaed to testify against Rodney and Bruce on RICO charges. If Rodney thought that someone was snitching on them for this pharmacy burglary ring activity that they were doing, and they were the leaders of the group, he and his brother, that he was facing life in prison if he got caught. You gotta think about that as a criminal. Demetrius Reeves also took the stand, but Reeves said he was in Crestline on February 13th, the night of the murders, and he denied having any part in the shootings. Did you, uh, did you shoot your children? No. Do you have any reason to believe that Rodney or Bruce Melton did? I don't know. I don't know if they did or not. I just, I just whether whoever did it, I just want whoever did it caught. And they played the tape, and that's when Kwanita said, my daddy's friend, Bruce. And when using that word friend, man, that's key. She didn't just say it was Bruce. She said it's the friend. And then when the pharmacy burglary come out, and you look at Demetrius getting ready to testify and turn state's evidence against Rodney and Bruce, some kind of friend, didn't it? It sounds like Demetrius was a friend of both the Keiths and the Meltons, but he didn't take a strong allegiance to either family when he was on the stand. Remember, Kevin said in his media interview with Tanya Strong that he was sure Demetrius knew that he loved his kids. How did you know them? Because their dad and I spent a lot of time together. We're like best friends. They came over a lot of, lot this summer, and, you know, I fed them, and their dad was going through bad times with a divorce, and I was there to comfort him. And Demetrius' two kids, I love them like I love my own, and he knows that. I believe deep down inside, he really knows that. But that's not how it played out during the trial. Though there are several things that don't look good for Kevin in this case, the same could be said for some other players here. In particular, Rodney Melton's name is sprinkled throughout the police reports. He was attached to the license plate numbers. He was at the scene of the crime on February 13th. And also, as we've covered last episode, police reports state that Rodney was at the hospital that same night accusing Rudell of being the reason this all happened. In fact, an article in the Bucyrus Telegraph Forum ran this statement, citing a source that wished to stay anonymous. The man said a mutual acquaintance met Chapman family members at the hospital shortly after the shootings and described the gunman before anyone but eyewitnesses could have known such details. How was Rodney Melton so involved to help implicate Kevin? Why was he at the hospital? If you look into most of the report, Rodney stated this, Rodney stated that, Rodney said this, and Rodney did that. I, I just couldn't believe that. 
That's what I thought was the most interesting about his testimony. Like he said, they asked him about his car, whatever, and they just believed him. For the jury, it was almost as if, since the police believe him, then we should believe him. He's not, he's been cleared. I think the biggest question is why would they protect him, right? It's still the big question, right? If this guy was a viable suspect, why wouldn't they investigate and find the pharmacy board report? Well, when it comes to the pharmacy burglary investigation, there may have been some bad police work going on. And the first place to start is with a closer look at the other informant, Lynn McKee. She was the driver. She was the driver of the ring, admittedly. She tells the police that she's driving, and so she's exchanging that information for, you know, probably a lesser charge or immunity or something. I don't know. It's not listed anywhere as to what she was offered by, by Jerry Hickman. I don't know if they ever realized that Lynn McKee was acting as a confidential informant. They certainly knew that when they got arrested once this information actually went out. And obviously, during their trial, they realized that. And inside of that trial, it's revealed that Lynn McKee is the CI providing information to the police. And it's then revealed that she's sleeping with the lead detective, Jerry Hickman. Lynn McKee was the CI. And, and lucky for them that Lynn McKee was because Lynn McKee strikes up a romantic relationship with Jerry Hickman. And because of that, it's a conflict of interest. And as soon as that comes up, the judge says this information isn't valid. We can't, none of this information that she supplies anymore is, could be real because she's in a relationship with a detective. She could be making this whole thing up. She becomes a, you know, an ineffective witness, if you would. So, the lesser charges, there are some lesser charges that the burglary ring gets. They do serve some time, but not the 99 count and the RICO charge, which could have resulted in all of them going life in prison. So Lynn McKee saves their ass yet again, and she's still married to Jerry Hickman to this day. I was out there, I knocked on their door and saw her myself. Jerry Hickman ended up entering into a romantic relationship with one of the confidential informants from the pharmacy burglary ring, Lynn McKee. Lori approached Hickman and McKee's house in the pursuit of a statement for this podcast, but was turned away. Remember, Hickman was the lieutenant from Galleon who showed up at the Bucyrus Estates murder scene with Lieutenant Dane. They are the ones that first said Kevin's name, according to Bucyrus police reports. Lynn McKee is the one who reported Rodney's threat about being paid $15,000 to cripple the man responsible. She was the one who made the initial report that was withheld from defense counsel during Kevin's trial. When the drug ring was eventually tried later in 1994, I was told that it was Hickman's clandestine relationship that ended up costing that investigation. Hickman had played such a significant part in that investigation, so when his credibility was ruined due to that relationship, it just damaged their case beyond repair. Though the members of the pharmacy burglary ring were eventually tried for their crimes, due to the mismanagement of the case, they all just got reduced sentences. Ultimately, no one served that life sentence for the RICO charges. After the pharmacy burglary ring trial, Jerry Hickman just faded away from public service, and so did David Dane. 
In fact, David Dane retired from duty on June 1st, 1994. It was one day after Kevin was sentenced to death. Hickman had retired on February 27th of 1995, and it was only a few months after the pharmacy ring trial ended. An affair with an informant is a pretty serious breach of morality when it comes to law enforcement duty. To me, it's feasible that a man who would cross this line wouldn't think twice about not turning over evidence of another possible suspect. If Hickman would risk interfering with the case so much as to strike up a relationship with his CI, what else would he think was acceptable conduct? It may not have been a purposeful withholding of information, and maybe it was just an oversight, but the fact remains. This information mattered, and it wasn't reported. So what does this all amount to? This whole narrative about the pharmacy burglary ring, this is all exculpatory evidence that should have been available to defense counsel at the time of Kevin's trial. In May of 1994, this was not available information. Therefore, the omission of this concurrent case could have been a serious Brady violation and an infringement on Kevin's rights as a defendant. Had Kevin's lawyer, James Banks, known about this information, had they provided it to him, he could have brought up those threats that were made by Rodney. And to me, there seems to be reasonable cause to investigate you know, others that had similar motives. There are a lot of people who were ratted on by Rudell Chapman. But again, Kevin was arrested only two days after the murders. At the end of the day, I just want to emphasize how imperfect the system is. No matter what you believe about this case, do you consider this due process? This mismanagement is enough to tell me that this case deserves a second look. But I assure you, this isn't the last twist of this winding road, and we haven't put the last pieces of the puzzle together yet. Another thing is that I had discovered was letters that was written during Kevin's trial. There was a letter written from Rodney Melton to Detective Corwin, you know, describing some things. And I think he wrote that letter on May 19th. Kevin's trial started May 10th. That's when they started their 40 year and putting together the jury and all that stuff. So I think it was, yeah, May 19th is when Rodney wrote that letter, two-page letter, and sent it to the police officer. And that was never turned over to defense. It was never turned over to anybody. And we have those letters. Here's an excerpt from the one Charles is referring to. May 19, 1994, Mr. Mike Corwin. Rodney Melton knew Michael Corwin from his youth. They grew up together in the same community. I'm sort of disappointed for various reasons, and I'll explain or try to. First of all, I gave my parole officer my word that I would help or try to. And he goes on to say, I tried to help you, Mike. And I probably would have been a total help if my car would have been running. I probably would have been a better help if I would have been awakened different. Mike, not all black men are totally going bad. It takes a little goodness of heart to not get lost in the madness and ignore all the rules. Mike, this madness all over the country has got to stop. And I pray it's not too late. So what was the nature of this relationship? And why did Rodney feel the need to write these letters to the lead detective? We'll get into this and Detective Corwin's correspondence next time on The System.
The System is a Spotify original series produced in partnership with Big City TV and Tenderfoot TV. I'm Kim Kardashian, your host and executive producer. From Big City TV, executive producer is Lori Rothschild and Saldi. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Lead creative producer is Meredith Stedman. Production, editing, and sound design by Tristan Bankston and Cameron Taggy. Additional sound design by Cooper Skinner. Production manager is Tracy Kaplan. Music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Voiceover work by Miles Agee. Associate producer is Jamie Albright. Mixed and mastered by Devin Johnson. 